0: Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. Well, hi there, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the All Things Unity podcast. Today, we are going to continue our discussion about alternatives to clean code and a philosophy of software design. And last time, we wrapped up the series about a philosophy of software design, but we are by no means done yet with the alternatives to clean code. There are many cool books to consider, and today we are going to start diving into one of my favorite books about software development processes of all time, The Pragmatic Programmer by Andrew Hunt and Dave Thomas. I read this book back in 2018 and yeah, I I checked when I ordered it so I'm pretty sure and I was pretty amazed by the content presented in it. There's just so many, well, common sense or like pragmatic advice in this book the first thought you will get when you read this is like I already know this, yet I I do not practice it and it makes total sense it's like reading these personal development books right you already know everything that is in the book you just need someone to articulate it to you and well remind you of it at least uh, that's the feeling I get when reading like personal development books or leadership books for example it's all common sense yet you need someone to remind you But yeah, um, today we are going to start a new multi-part series about the content in the Pragmatic Programmer. We will tackle this in the exact same way as we did with Clean Code and a philosophy of software design. I'm just going to read through the book and talk about all the chapters individually. And one funny thing though, is that the first book we did was Clean Code, which is like 464 pages. And we spent like four episodes on it and some of these episodes were rather lengthy but yeah still and the next book a philosophy of software design was only 188 pages long yet we spent six episodes on it and the reason being of of course is that during a philosophy of software design we could compare it to clean code and thus there was more room for discussion so now with the third book the pragmatic programmer which is 250 59 pages long, we have even more materials to compare it, so there will most likely be more than 6 episodes on well, on just this book. I suspect it will be like 10 or 12 maybe, but yeah, we'll see. And although I have to say that as clean code and a philosophy of software design are more about implementation details and strategies, the pragmatic programmer deals more with like behavioral and process-like things. There are implementation details in there as well, but it also—it's uh, also about your behavior as a professional software developer. We could compare the pragmatic programmer a bit with another uh, Uncle Bob book called *The Clean Coder*, not clean code, but the clean coder, which is also a really great book and definitely worth a read if you have done—if you haven't done yet. Um, we might check the Clean Coder out in the future as well, but not for now, since I want to have a more diverse uh, like set of literature, so content written by different authors, so we well you can actually compare the differences. Um, but all right, enough about the introduction of this episodes. Let's dig into the material. The book the pragmatic programmer and is written by two authors two very well-known authors in the software industry and they are andrew hunt and dave thomas and if you studied like agile software development processes before you have probably read these names before as well since both of them are original signers of the agile manifesto they have written and published multiple books and the one we are about to take a look at was first published in 1999. They even have their own publishing company now called the Pragmatic Bookshelf and most likely you have read or owned some of the books published by them. Uh, both of them are very well respected guys in the software community, so we are up for a real treat. And, oh, Um, By the way, we are going to discuss the original version of the Pragmatic Programmer and not the 20th anniversary uh, edition of the book published in September of 2019. I don't own that book and I think the content in the original is still solid and and it's not dated. Um, There might be some advice in here that might be dated, but uh, it, it also gives us some interesting insights in how they did things back then. Uh, In 1999, and it also allows us to better compare it to the content of clean code, which is also considered dated So without further ado, let's take a look at the preface of the book and explore the purpose of the pragmatic programmer And in the first sentence of the book the authors claim that this book will help you to become a better programmer And I mean doesn't that sound exciting? That's a pretty daring claim, right? I like it. They also define the word pragmatic, which comes from the Latin word pragmaticus. And it means skilled in business. And which in turn comes from Greek. uh, Which I'm unable to pronounce, but it means to do. And they say, and by, by they I mean the authors of the book, Andrew Hunt and Dave Thomas, Um, But they say that the pragmatic programmer is aimed at people who want to become more effective at their job. And the book does not have all the answers, but still it will make you more effective and it will increase your understanding of the entire development processes. And next up, they list the seven traits of a pragmatic programmer, which I really like. And they say that pragmatic programmers are people who are, are... early adopters and fast adapters. You like picking up new technologies and trying things out. When given something new, you quickly try it and integrate it with the rest of your knowledge. I think this is indeed a good trait to have, especially in our industry. The game and software industry moves very, very quickly. New stuff is released day by day and you really must keep up with the state of the industry in some way. You don't need to be an expert in everything, but you need some basic understanding about many topics. For example, even though we are game developers, it is very useful to have some basic understanding about how cloud architectures work, or some basic knowledge about machine learning, because you will inevitably come in contact with this stuff, even as a game developer. And a pragmatic programmer is also someone, uh, someone who is inquisitive. So what the hell does that word even mean? I mean, uh, it means that you are eager for knowledge. So basically, you have no problem asking questions. You like little facts and you tend to ask neat little questions about implementation details. Like how did you solve that pathfinding solution for this or that enemy? Or how did you implement that particle system for the sauce dripping of the spaghetti monster's tentacle? Or how did you implement that beer volcano? Those are important questions of course. And you as a pragmatic programmer have a tendency to ask them. Critical thinking is also a skill of a pragmatic programmer. And since you like little facts, you rarely take things uh, without getting the facts first. You need a solid view of something before you invest time in it. So when a colleague says you need to do it this way because we have always done it this way is not enough. There are probably more important reasons why they have always done it that way or you'd like like to know what those reasons are. Um, Next, a pragmatic programmer is also realistic. You really want to understand the underlying nature of each problem you face. And this sense of realism provides you with enough knowledge about how difficult things are. This is a great trait to have as a developer since it will help you making better estimations. Uh, Which are still one of the most difficult things to get right as a developer. Trust me, estimation is really hard if there are many unknowns. And even if you think you know everything, you might just miss that small little thing, but that will set you back on your schedule for two weeks. But your sense of realism will also help you stay motivated. Since you know much, uh, since you know how much work something is, going to take, uh, you can motivate yourself to get the job done. If you simply work from surprise to surprise, in the sense that all these unknowns slap you right in the, fla- in the face and slow you down, you might get demotivated. And a pragmatic programmer is a jack of all trades. You can be an expert in one single thing or you can be someone who knows enough about many things to make him or or herself uh, effective in that particular technology or environment. So even though your job might require you to specialize, you invest time of your own to get a broader view of the playing field. You investigate new technologies just enough to know when to consider it and when or why to use it or don't. This also relates you to you being an earlier adopter or being inquisitive. You are always ready for new challenges. And then the authors also say that pragmatic programmers care about their craft. You, as a professional game developer, care about the code you write. You want to produce the best code you can. Not just behavioral, but also structural. We have covered this in depth in the previous episodes about clean code and a philosophy of software design. And the last trait, a pragmatic programmer is someone who thinks about this work. You can think about what the heck you are doing and why you are doing it. It's part of being a critical thinker as well. You will call out things that are wrong in the design or maybe like gameplay wise for example. You're you're not just a code monkey that works through all his, his or her tickets in Jira or whatever ticketing system you are using. You speak up and raise your voice when inconsistencies are found to improve the quality of the game you are building. And next they have a very interesting section which is about being a pragmatic, pragmatic programmer in a large team. And I'll quote the, I'll quote this little section and then discuss it. So here we go. And I quote, "Some people feel that there is no room for individuality on large teams or complex projects. Software construction is an engineering discipline," they say. "That breaks down if individual team members make decisions for themselves." End quote. And isn't that interesting? I do feel like in large projects it is really nice to have some general consensus about what the architecture of the system ought to be. But individual opinions are certainly great to have since they introduce different perspectives. The authors say that the construction of software should indeed be an engineering discipline. However, that doesn't preclude individual craftsmanship. And oh boy, this is such a brilliant line. And they say it's so right. You can have a team of individual craftsmen or women forming a team that constructs the software. And each crafter brings special skills to the table which are combined to make the best team. I never thought about it this way. The the example they give in the book is really cool too. They say that a long time ago, during the Middle Ages, there are these huge cathedrals built here in Europe. Uh, and I've seen some of them. They're they are truly amazing to look at. The level of craftsmanship is huge in these things. They're all like little statues and ornaments and the glasswork. It's all amazing. But they were built by huge teams of craftsmen over decades. And I really like this analogy. It really makes you respect the individuals in the teams for their specialized or like broad skill set. and. Another important aspect of all of this is that building some great medieval cathedral, uh, suffer is a continuous process. Software starts out small and gradually but steadily grows into something larger as it starts fitting your requirements more and more. And Uncle Bob talks about this in Clean Code a lot as well. And a similar concept is described in a philosophy of software design. Professor Austerhout talks about how maintaining complexity is the most important aspect of software uh, design. Because once you let it slip away, complexity will only ever increase. So keeping complexity creep in check is fundamental. So the preface ends with some information about how the book is structured and acknowledgements. So yeah, we'll skip that and continue with chapter one. And chapter 1 is called A Pragmatic Philosophy. And the authors say that this is a philosophy of approaching problems and their solutions. Pragmatic programmers think beyond the immediate problem and always trying to place it in a larger context to be aware of the bigger picture. This sounds great, right? And right up our alley. And this highly correlates with the strategic mind of software design described by Professor Austerhout. He describes this strategic mind as one that thinks about the future impact of the code, code reuse and not increasing the complexity level. It's going to be interesting to see the correlations of, of things that set the book apart from clean code or a philosophy of software design. But alright, the first section in this book is called The Cat Ate My Source Code. And it, I indeed remember some funny titles in this book. What they mean with this title is that you are a professional. uh, As a professional game developer, you must take responsibility. You take responsibility for your work, but also for your career and learnings. They're also not afraid to admit your mistake or lack arrogance. So even you practice uh, when you practice TDD, some weird edge cases might slip through and create bugs. These things happen and you need to be able to be honest and take responsibility for them. We all make such mistakes and well, they're just part of being human. So be proud of yourself and be honest of your shortcomings. Um, Being part of taking uh, responsibility is that you should provide options and don't bring lame excuses. And that's so true. Lame excuses don't belong in a professional workspace. For example, I can still hear old classmates say that their code is gone after the IDE crash. Well, that's such a lame excuse for them to say because, well, they didn't do shit and went out partying the entire weekend or, like, playing video games. Everyone knew it back then. But, yeah, where this might have been acceptable, quote-unquote, in school, it's certainly not acceptable on a professional job since there are a lot more people involved and, well, there's money involved as well. So... Instead of bringing bad excuses bring bring options. Don't say something cannot be done, but explain what can be done to salvage some solution. There are often multiple things that can be done to fix some situation, no matter how bad it is. Not every option might be nice to hear, but it's still the options. They are still there and they can be well considered. And the next section is called suffer entropy. This is such a cool title, right? Software entropy is essentially just the complexity creep Professor Ousserhout has talked a lot about in his book, A Philosophy of Software Design, and Uncle Bob would call this dirty code or rotten code. Software entropy is really the reasons why clean coding practices are such an important skill to have as a programmer. So thank the software gods for writing such amazing books about this topic. Um, Many factors impact software entropy, where the most important one seems to be philosophy or culture at work or on a project. Isn't that interesting? It's not skill or education or experience, but psychology and culture. But it makes total sense, right? I mean, if the entire team says, we don't write unit tests because it slows us down, then the culture of the project team just confirmed that tests are worthless and thus you end up with a code base without a test suite. Or maybe when you have some toxic project manager who is micromanaging everything the culture will be impacted a great deal as well. Everyone will be stressed out and on the edge of their chair all day. Um, in the book they have a very nice analogy about how buildings start to decay. So, there are many very nice and clean, beautiful buildings in a city. But there are also dirty, broken down and abandoned buildings in a city. And according to researchers in the field of crime and urban decay, the biggest indicator or trigger of a building starting to rot is just a simple broken window. If the broken window is left unaccounted for too long, then the building will get abandoned and start to break down entirely into a rotting hulk. People don't repair it because it looks like no one cares. So don't leave broken windows in your code because this will lead to software entropy. Broken windows can be many things like bad designs, wrong decisions or poor code. And generally, Any kind of technical depth might qualify as a broken window. Try to fix these things as soon as possible. Put them like on a schedule at least so people know what's going on and so they get tracked in your project management software. Don't just leave them around and wait until the entire project to crumble and people will stop care about the project. And yeah, the next section of the book is called Stone Soup and Boiled Frogs. I told you these titles were interesting, right? Um, this section essentially is about two things, being a catalyst for change and remembering the big, bigger picture. Um, there will be these moments when you or your team needs to build some game, but in this particular case, you know exactly how to do it. You've seen and experienced the matrix at this point. You know how to tackle the problem, how to implement it, and how to verify it. But now you must ask your superiors or some committee for permission to do the project. And they will defend their resources, of course. Um, This is what the authors call startup fatigue. And you as a pragmatic programmer must then negotiate some minimum viable product and then develop it and present it to them in such a way that they will say of course it would be better if we added features X, Y, and Z. And these features are the ones that you recommended to them in the first place. So you still end up with the project you had in mind. So be a catalyst for change and don't stay idle or waiting for too long. Take responsibility and let your voice be heard because you were hired to do exactly that. And, also remember the big picture. Don't fall for overengineering. Don't fall in the overengineering trap. Try to remember why some project is started and what the problems it aims to solve. Of course, software evolves and grows, so maybe uh, it might solve a totally different problem in the future, like when you have to pivot with your startup, for example. But try to keep your eyes on the price and don't stray off to some remote destination. Um, In the book, they again have a very nice analogy about this, uh, like boiling a frog in a pan of hot water, hence the frog in the title of the chapter. And it's generally known, but well, I've never tried this personally, that if you throw a frog in a pan of boiling water, the frog will jump right out. But if you put the frog in cold water and gradually heat up the pan until it reaches the temperature to boil, then the frog will stay in. So the frog definitely lost the uh, the the bigger picture. It does not remember it. It got distracted, and you don't want to be the frog because you'll get boiled. And next, there is a section that uh, is kind of popular. You might have heard of the term "good enough software" before. It is not originally from this book, but from an article in the IEEE Software. Uh, by, by Ed Jordan which goes as follows and I quote you can discipline yourself to write software that's good enough good enough for your users for future maintainers and your own peace of mind you will find that uh, you are more productive and your users are happier and you may well find that your problems are actually better in for the shorter incubation end quote But what exactly does good enough software mean? This is highly subjective, right? I mean, good enough should not imply sloppy, poorly designed or poorly produced code. And while the authors make the case that quality should be on your requirements list. And this comes right back at us, right? We have been talking about code quality for a long time now and I think we know what good enough software and code quality means. We've discussed this in depth while digging into Uncle Bob's clean code and Professor Austerhout's philosophy of software design. But on the other hand, the authors make two interesting cases in this book which we have not discussed to great length yet. And that is to evolve customers into trade-offs you need to make and secondly, you need to know when to stop and don't over-engineer something. And usually, uh, you will make software or a game for someone else. We all get requirements which we need to translate into a working game. And sometimes though, we do not get requirements about how good the software needs to be. I mean, if you are working on a software for pacemakers, or maybe software that is launched into space, the term quality takes a totally different form. But what the authors rightfully note here is that quality should be part of your requirements. It must be and will always be important because if the quality is not high up your ladder, your game will suffer in some form or another. However, you should not be overzealous about it. Don't strive for perfection because you will never get there. In software there is always room for improvement. It's like trying to reach 100% test coverage. You can try and reach it, but you never will. It's an asymptotic goal. And on the other hand, the author tells something else, which I find fascinating. And I quote, surprisingly, many users would rather use software with rough edges today than wait for a year. End quote. This, sounds, <laughs> this really sounds like our industry, right? How many times have you signed off for a beta access of a game? A lot of people do that nowadays just because they don't have the patience to wait. But I guess that's more of a Western or cultural thing, I guess. Many people will agree with me that ro- that we rather have great software today than perfect software next year. And this is very true because it is what agile workflows are all about. Recreate minimal projects and then ask around for feedback and iterate on it to improve it. So there's a constant flow or trade of software and feedback. So this is how good software is developed. Based on this process, it also becomes pretty clear when you should stop or pause development of some game. And the authors compare software development to painting in this analogy. With painting, you can start out with a black canvas and raw materials that you think of something, what you want to paint, make some rough sketches and start painting to fill in the details. And painters also have this habit of constantly stepping back to view the bigger picture, literally. This allows you to have a critical eye to view the work you have done. And how often have you heard some artists talk about how it is crucial to know when to stop painting or the painting will be ruined? I know I have heard this before, and at some point the painting is just done and any more edits uh, will just ruin it and make it worse. So don't spoil a perfectly good game with over-engineering or endless fine-tuning. Move on and let the code stand in its own right. And this is so true, I couldn't agree more. I've had these moments where some game or software was essentially finished it matched all requirements and did exactly what it want, what I wanted it to do, but I kept working on it to improve the structure of the code to fit some design pattern better, for example. No one really wanted it, and since it did not really improve the system that much. But I did, because I thought it would make it even better than it already was. So maybe I shouldn't have done it. Well, but yeah, what do you do about it, right? Um... And the next section is about something really important and maybe even controversial. And that is that knowledge is your portfolio. I think we can all agree on that. And as game or software professionals, uh, our knowledge is what we sell. There are of course uh, like soft skills like communication, but we do knowledge work. So our knowledge is of great value. Don't underestimate that, by the way. It takes a long time to gather the knowledge needed to be a game developer. It's like Uncle Bob said in one of his talks. How many languages do you need to know to get a goddamn website up? That's about web development, of course. So you need, like, maybe some backend knowledge and bash and HTML and JavaScript and... I don't know, a lot of languages are needed to just like write a stupid website, right? And we as game developers have the exact same issues. How many languages, products and tools do you need to know to release a game on the app stores? Think about it. It is probably far more complex than you expect it to be. You will notice when you have battled with Xcode with some obscure setting you forgot trying to release an iOS app, for example. But yeah, knowledge is your portfolio. But what's so controversial about this, you might ask? Well, many devs will uh, still tell you that if my boss wants me to know or use something, uh, some new technology, for example, they must pay for my classes or for my conference tickets or workshops. They, my boss, I, I mean by that, must send me to boot camps. Uh, And I will spend time studying during work time and not at home. And this is not what the pragmatic approach would be. The pragmatic programmer makes the case that since knowledge is your portfolio, you yourself must be in charge. You will buy your own tickets for conferences. You will schedule your own courses and boot camps. You will buy your own books. You will study at home and if allowed, you might spend time studying at work as well. And Uncle Bob makes the same case in the book called The Clean Coder. Um, Not to be confused with clean code. The book is actually called The Clean Coder. So we must take responsibility of our own knowledge. Don't expect your employer to pay for your courses or any study materials. Do it yourself to improve your craft. It's your career and you must take lead and stay on top of things. So the authors, give some advice on how to gain or like show your knowledge and that is of course with a portfolio just like an investor has a portfolio so must you and i well i think this is well understood in the game industry or well maybe the more creative side of software development i often see that people who work on like the creative or like artsy side of game development have a well-developed portfolio But programmers, on the other hand, sometimes lack a portfolio. I think uh, it's part of the reason Like programmers are always needed. And it's not a big deal uh, to find a new job in programming. You can find a decent job in just a matter of days as a programmer, especially in the Netherlands. But I guess it's worldwide or internationally is the same. Um, But the advice the authors provide is to keep a portfolio and it... It's it's really nice to share a couple of ideas. So first of all, you need to invest regularly. You need to invest into your portfolio every now and then, just by a little, uh, and just a little could be enough. Uh, Did you use some new tool at work, write a short little blog about it, or provide like a little code snippet on GitHub or uh, GitLab for example. Maybe you read some some nice blog or article uh, about an emergent technology or something you find interesting. Create a little project that shows your knowledge on the topic in a really simplistic way. Um, The next tip is to diversify your portfolio. As we read in the beginning of the book, pragmatic programmers are people with a broad skill set. So diversifying your portfolio is part of that the more different things you know, the more valuable you are to an organization. Especially with for example the entire DevOps movement that is still running strong at this point. Having knowledge about CI, CD tools is a big plus no matter in which part of the software development processes or like position you keep. And another reason to diversify is that the technology space is ever-changing and at a really rapid rate. Our industry has constant innovation and improvements, and you cannot afford to slack or fall behind. You need to stay on top of the developments of your specific career path, for example. You cannot follow up on everything, of course, but at least you need to know the newest jazz about things that impact your career. So, for example... Me as a Unity 3D programmer, I'm on top of C# .net and the Unity 3D engine developments and experimental packages provided uh, through the package manager in Unity, like the dots or ECS. But also, I read about graphical improvements in Unity, like ray tracing, which was a really big deal a while ago. Um, the next tip is to manage the risk uh, is to manage risk with your portfolio. So what do the authors mean here? Well, they say that if you over-specialize, you might find yourself being put out of a job by new developments in the industry, for example. If you put all your eggs in one basket, so to say, that might be bad, might be a bad choice. And although I don't fully agree here, I mean specializing as a Unity 3D developer is still a very good idea at this moment. Unity 3D is not going anywhere and will only gain in popularity, I think. Especially with the entire Web3 and Metaverse thing coming up. Whether you like it or not, it will come. And then I, see, I even saw like a post on LinkedIn the other day where some dude made the case that the tech stack of the future will be Web3, VR, and some game or 3D engine instead of the current JavaScript or node stack. I think it's fascinating though. And one many developers might not have seen coming. But yeah, it's, it's still a good idea to invest in Unity 3D at this point. It's a really great, great thing. So the next tip is to buy low and sell high. The others mean that it might be difficult to find new and emergent technologies to focus on in your portfolio work. It may even be risky and very difficult to get started with but sometimes you have to, and it will pay out. Imagine, just imagine the people who invested time into learning Kubernetes in the early days, for example. It was a novel open source tool, which is currently the accepted standard for clustering and container management. And I bet the early adopters have some pretty decent jobs and salaries that go with it. And the last tip is to rebalance every once in a while. So if the last time you experimented with a database was two years ago, maybe like a local SQLite database for your game, you might need to reinvest some time uh, in this again to refresh your knowledge. And it won't take you a lot of time and will probably pay off as well. But the bottom line is that you must invest regularly in your portfolio. You always need to set a couple of realistic goals for yourself and keep them. Think about the New Year's resolutions you set for yourself. Do you keep them? And are they realistic? And it's really important that if you set some goal, you know you can reach it by the end of the year or else you'll never make them. And yeah, this also includes your goal to go to a gym for physical exercise in January. But by the time February runs around, uh, you won't show up for the rest of the year. It's really cliche, but it really still happens a lot. But... Alright, the author's first tip about setting goals is that you should learn at least one language every year. And Uncle Bob says the same exact thing. An important aspect of this goal is that you shouldn't have to be an expert in that new language. But if you really like that language, you are able to switch over and continue your career in in that language because you know enough about it to be productive. Different languages solve problems in different ways. So learning the basics of some language will definitely change your view about the problem domains you're working in. For example, the last languages I learned over the past couple of years are Kotlin, which is rather similar to Java, but more modern. But I also learned Clojure, which is a dialect of Lisp that runs on a JVM, the Java Virtual Machine. So the runtime not to be confused with the Java language. And I learned F# this year. And F# is a language that runs on the CLR, the Common Language uh, Runtime by Microsoft. And F# is essentially a functional version of C# running on the .NET platform. And now I'm far from an expert in these languages, but I'm definitely sure that I know enough about these languages that I can solve some basic problems and I know where to dig into when a problem gets difficult. Why did I pick those? Well, because I thought they were interesting. And the next languages or language I will dig into is like either like Golang or Rust. Maybe Rust first, because then I can have a look at another great game engine called Godot, which I have not really paid much attention to until now. So, the next tip they give concerning your goals is that you need to read at least one technical book per quarter. A quarter of a year, they mean. So, one book each three months. This is really great advice, and one I have followed up on ever since I read this book. I read a lot of technical books at home, but also at work, um, with my morning coffee. Currently, I'm reading Modern Software Engineering by Dave Farley. And it's a really great book. It's really awesome. And I'll put a link uh, about it in the show notes for you guys. Um, and also, I'm digging into this book, The Pragmatic Programmer for the podcast. Plus, we have already discussed two other books, Clean Code and A Philosophy of Software Design. So I guess for the book part, we are settled for now. Um, and the next tip Uh, uh, is that I recommend you should read non-technical books. Yes, you really need to do this to wind down your brain and maybe even get some much-needed inspiration. Some dude called Elon Musk famously designed his spaceship rocket to look like the rocket in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Just saying. And I'm reading a couple of non-technical books as well. I'm reading a book called Moonshots by Naveen Jain which is about startups and the entrepreneur uh, mindset. And I'm also reading some old Lovecraft stories. Plus I read the daily uh, I read daily to the kids although these yeah these are kids books right. But it's really interesting to hear the thoughts about certain topics on this book sometimes. Um I often read one technical book, but multiple non-technical books over the course of a month or two. I really need my mind around while reading technical books, and thus I only read one at a time. But when reading non-technical books, I like to switch a little bit depending on my mood, for example. So if I need to wind down uh, before I go to bed, for example, I'll probably read some fiction, something I do not have to process well and long but at other times I might read some books like Moonshots or book about like leadership or investing, psychology, philosophy or nutrition. It depends on my mood, as I said. So the next tip is to take some classes at local universities or workshop at user groups or like conferences, for example. I do some classes every now and then um, when I find like a hole in my schedule, Although over the years, my schedule has become more and more tight. Uh, If you are a parent, or once you become one, you know exactly what I mean. And the last course I did is a course on enterprise architecture at the local university here in the Netherlands. I learned quite a bit from that course, mostly that, well, enterprise architecture is not for me. I thought it was pretty, well, boring and involved a lot of politics. And I wrote a lot of blogs about this course, which I will link to in the show notes. I'm glad that I did the course though, but it yeah it just did not really align with my interests, which are mostly oriented towards technology and game development and software engineering. Um, and the authors also rightly advise you to participate in local user groups if there are any. This is a great idea, although not feasible for everyone. I've, for example, been searching for local user groups on apps like Meetup, for example, but in my neighborhood there simply aren't that many, which is a total bummer. The nearest user groups are, like, are like 45 minutes to a one-hour drive, and I often uh, these groups are held during weekdays, uh, which is impossible for me at this moment. So. Although I would really like to participate in these user groups, it is just difficult to pull off. Maybe you are in a better situation and thus you should take up the opportunity to go to the user groups and share and learn about your craft. I've been to a couple and I never regretted it, so check these user groups out. These groups uh, help to stay you current in the rapid changing technology space we operate in. It's truly ever changing. So read some blogs, books, newspapers, and if you're into it, dive into research papers related to your interest. And of course, listen to many podcasts like this one. Podcasts are often very timely. Topics are often recent since they will pull in listeners. And don't forget about YouTube or websites like Udemy. And I just read the 2022 uh, Stack Overflow Developer Survey that uh, Udemy is like the most important website for upskilling, which they, they certainly deserve. It's just a really great website and a lot of great content on there. So check out some courses there. You will most likely learn new stuff. And learning is important. So keep on learning, guys. Um, one part of learning is... You have to be a critical thinker, and the authors say that you should always critically analyze what you read and hear, and I fully agree. One thing I still fondly remember from a professor in university is that he said you should always take any advice or any information with a grain of salt. Then do your own research about it in trusted sources like books or research papers, and only then can you make a decent choice if you agree or disagree. I've taken that advice to heart because I apply it in every aspect of my life. I'm really, like, if I'm having a discussion with someone and they tell me something or ask me a question about something I do not know anything about, I'll tend to tell them in all honesty that I don't know and look into it and come back to him or her. There's nothing wrong with not knowing things. It's just another opportunity to learn. And learning is continuous, so you should enjoy it as much as you can. Um, And this also leads into another section of the book, which is all about communication. We all know that communication is a very important aspect of of our job as developers. Just writing code without doing communication about about it will lead you down a dark path. We must communicate with customers or product owners about requirements, features, estimations, and deadlines. We must also communicate with our peers for transferring knowledge. And although we are developers and we like to code, we need to be social in order to do our jobs properly. When you're just a code monkey, closing tickets on your JIRA board, you will burn out very quickly. Have you been in that situation? You know, day after day, week after week, just picking up whatever is high priority on the Scrum or Kanban board in order to make some deadline? not discussing any high level design or contact with customers or knowledge transfer with colleagues do not you don't have anything to say what tickets are supposed to be picked up and you do not have any input on how it's supposed to be implemented all of this is just passed down by to you by someone else now how much fun of how much fun is that and i'll just say it for you it sucks ass so Communication is a critical skill for any developer. Hell, it's, it's an important skill for every human to have. And in the book, the authors present us with some tips on how to be a good communicator. They start by saying, you should know what you want to say. This is mostly important when you are in, high, in a high-level business setting in formal styles of communication it can be very difficult to find a proper way to describe what you want i've been in both business settings and startups and well <clears throat> to me the startup vibe is more attractive i just it just resonates more to me than just formal like a formal business environment where everyone is required to be dressed in expensive suits where you are unable to move in uh, just, that's just me being a weirdo millennial, I guess. Um also a big fan of remote work and flexible work hours. So yeah, you know what you want to say. Sometimes when you don't know, write it down and start with an introduction on the topic. When you write things down, it will really help your brain to process things. You've probably heard that before and it really works. I do it all the time. <clears throat> And the next tip is to know your audience. I I really hinted at it just now. Being in a formal business setting compared to a startup setting will definitely be a different audience. You can't really build an entire presentation out of memes when presenting to business people. But maybe in your startup or presentation among developers, your fancy meme-driven presentation lands very well. This uh, also concerns the information you're about to talk about, right? If you need to explain some project you're doing to business people versus technical people, you might be able to dive a little bit deeper into the technical details while talking to the tech crowd. But knowing your audience is one thing, but it is also important to choose the right moment. If you your calling colleague, your colleagues for a knowledge meeting at like Friday at 4 p.m., you will most likely not be very successful. Maybe if you Add some beers or food they might join but how much will they learn also when you know people are very busy maybe trying to beat the deadline uh, it's probably also a very bad moment to ask them for an update like to update their unity version they will shrug off uh, um, they will shrug you off like in an annoyance and updating that unity version can probably wait anyway and Another aspect of good communication is to choose your style. Sometimes a quick Slack message is sufficient. Some other times you write a proper email or you might even plan a meeting to discuss things depending on the topic and importance or maybe the project or business or financial impact. It just really depends on what you need uh, and why or when you need it. Depending on your style, it might also be easy involve your audience into discussion or conversation. This is always a good idea, by the way. If you involve your audience, you are not talking to a wall. Plus, it will also force them to listen, which is required for good communication and is a crucial part of receiving feedback. You really need to be able to take feedback. I think we have talked about this before while discussing the clean codebook. If you see feedback as criticism, you will not enjoy your job as a developer because every other developer has an opinion about code. You need to be able to take feedback however bad it might seem and make the best of it. It's just part of life. If you are stepped on your toes easily, you will suffer. And if you disagree with feedback, uh, have a discussion about it because m- there's mostly, most likely some middle ground to be found. It doesn't always have to be polarizing, Uh, that's what good communication looks like. And the very last tip they give is to always come back to people when you you tell them you will. Yes, this is very important because it will annoy the heck out of people when you don't. You've probably been in this situation where someone told you he or she will get back to you, but never did and never will. This is annoying and will slow you down because you will continuously need to ask that person for his or her impact. And at some point you will start to ignore him or her, which will not improve the company culture. So that's it for the preface and the first chapter of the Pragmatic Programmer. It's been pretty long I see, but let's review what we talked about uh, just a second. The authors gave some insights into pragmatic philosophy. They started by saying you as a pragmatic programmer should care about your craft, think about your work and take responsibility. And not just responsibility of your work, but also be proactive in progress and work related things. So don't wait and sit around uh, until people show up on your desk. Go out and stand at other people's desks and be proactive. And when you do, Don't give lame excuses but provide options and solutions. Try to be the catalyst of change while still remembering the bigger picture. Remember the frog being boiled? He totally forgot about the bigger picture. He was just enjoying a warm bath until it was too late. Um, The authors also spend rather much attention on the topic of your individual portfolio. I think this is crucial nowadays. If you are looking for a job, but do not have a nice portfolio, your four-year degree might not help you as much as you think. And the ecosystem is changing. There are multiple high-level companies that are not expecting job applicants to have degrees, but do have decent portfolios to prove their skills. And personally, I think there should be a middle ground. I think certain fields your degree will definitely come in handy but I agree that if you just want to do some front-end web design uh, with popular frameworks like React or Angular or Vue, some bootcamp might be enough to land you a job. But if you are deep into the weeds, uh, designing and developing low-level services, for example, then your degree and formal computer science knowledge will most definitely come in handy. And I'll give you one quick example. At work, I do some back-end work as well as Unity 3D. At some point, a front-end developer came to my desk telling me the back-end was doing weird uh, (coughs) while saving some data. He said he made some copy-paste functionality, but once he changed any of the copied data, it changed everywhere where he pasted it too. And this, to me, is the classic issue of reference types versus value types, so I explained it to him. This is not a backend thing. This is a problem in the way you use some JavaScript array copy logic. You need to make a deep copy, not a shallow copy. But uh, he being a true front-end guru, a brilliant creative developer, just never heard about this, which is understandable. But I think this is like a really nice example to give. Cases like this is where your formal degree might come in very handy. Um, But alright, we were talking about keeping your portfolio recent. It is very important, so really, spend some time on personal projects and create a nice portfolio. So invest regularly in your portfolio and diversify. Learn at least one language every year and remember, you do not need to be an expert, but just know about the general concepts a language is built upon. Read technical books and listen to podcasts, especially to this one of course. Take classes, courses or bootcamps to improve your skills and be a critical thinker and always communicate to the best of your abilities and your peers. Know what you want to say and know your audience and choose your moment. But I think that's enough for today. It's been a blast to go back to this book and as I said, this is one of my favorite books about software ever written. We have just scratched the surface and we only checked out the preface and the first chapter. And believe me, there are a lot of great chapters uh, in this book still coming. This book will blow your mind if you're not familiar with it. Um, We got a glimpse of it just in this podcast, but there's a lot to come. But alright, I hope you liked uh, this first look into the Pragmatic Programmer. Next time, we will be checking out the next chapter or a couple of chapters. I'm not sure yet how many. But let me know what you think about this book so far by sending me an email at podcast at allthingsunity.com. And also, don't forget to leave me a review on your favorite podcasting platform. If it's not available on your favorite platform, please let me know so I can see if I get the podcast on your favorite platform as well. So, thank you for listening. See you next time, and remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.